Support for this podcast comes from Avature ATS, an applicant tracking system that redefines user experience for candidates, recruiters and hiring managers. Just listen to one of the many ways in which L'Oreal USA has improved their hiring process with Avature, as told by Edward Dias, Director of Recruitment Intelligence and Innovation. Since we've been using Avature ATS globally, we have been able to massively improve our communication rate with candidates during and following their application. Uh, before, over a million people worldwide would never get contacted. Um, but with this smart automation and flexible processes, we've been able to change that. And that's been a huge achievement. Visit avature.net, that's A-V-A-T-U-R-E dot net, to learn why global market leaders like L'Oreal choose Avature to extend the candidate experience from shoulder tap to first day. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi everyone, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 159 of the Recruiting Future podcast. It's always great to have futurists from outside our industry on the show. We live in disruptive times, and I think it's important to listen to multiple perspectives on how current trends will develop to create the future of the workplace. My guest this week is Steve Wells, COO of Fast Future, which is a collaboration of futurists that I've always paid close attention to. Keep listening, because I know you'll find Steve's insights absolutely fascinating. Hi, Steve, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much indeed, Matt. Great to be here. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Could you introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do? Yeah, delighted to. So my name's Steve Wells, and I'm COO of a company called Fast Future. And we are a company of futurists. We operate around the world. We basically do three things. We do a bit of strategic consultancy, largely based around bespoke pieces of, uh, of foresight work for clients. We do keynote speaking, so we deliver presentations, keynote speeches, workshops all around the world. And we also publish books about the future. So everything we do um, is based on some foresight research about a particular aspect of the future that uh, that we or, or clients or, or delegates at events are particularly interested in. I think that's um, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, I've had a number of um, futurists on, on the show in the past. And what I'm always interested in is, um, you know, what's your methodology and, and, and your basis for um, predicting the future? So could, could you tell us a little bit more about the, the, the research that you do, how you do it and the, and the books that you write? Sure. So the research is um, is is kind of based on on really getting out there and trying to understand and spot some of the weak signals that maybe we're starting to see in a number of technologies, for example, that seem to be emerging out of laboratories all around the world. But what we typically do is try to put those in some sort of broader context. So how is it that the technologies that we're seeing, uh, like uh, nanotechnology, like blockchain, like artificial intelligence? 
intelligence? How are they potentially going to affect life, business and society in the future? So we very often develop kind of mini scenarios to help people make sense of those. The, the one thing that I, I, I would say that we try not to do is to make predictions. So what we're trying to do with the, the little scenarios that we develop is kind of create a range of plausible futures um, against which people can assess whether they need uh, new policy, new strategy, whether they need flexible or more resilient strategies. Because I think the underlying context for a lot of these scenarios is the pure pace and scale of change, the exponential nature of change and the increasingly uncertain world we live in. And I think it's really important for, for us as futurists to understand that that's not just about technology. That's about other social trends. It's about demography. It's about politics. It's about economics. It's about society more broadly, increasing urbanization. So there are a whole bunch of things that we need to kind of sit around the technological things that we see so that we can put them in context that hopefully helps people make sense of them a little bit more easily. Really interesting stuff. Now, um, I know that you guys have just sort of collaborated collaborated together um, on a new book called um, A Very Human Future. I think it's something that's going to be very interesting for the, the, the podcast audience because you're looking at um, aspects of, uh, you know, jobs and business and, and, and the workplace and industries and what they'll look like in the future. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. Well, the, the book A Very Human Future has, has become kind of in, in essence, part of the ethos of fast future and the reason that we're in business. So we fundamentally believe that we, society generally is at a bit of a choice point. And that choice point is about do we embrace the opportunity that technology represents on a more societal level? So how do we deploy technology? How do we think about its development? How do we use technology in our life, in, our, in, our, in society more broadly, in, in business specifically, to help create a more human future with the opportunities available to all? Um, or do we kind of resort to a sort of a default situation, which is where most of the benefits are taken for profit by big uh, technology corporations, for example. So it feels to us that you know, we do have this opportunity right now that the so-called fourth industrial revolution is very different to the previous three. And we genuinely do have some of these really big questions to answer. And hopefully what we do through a very human future is start to put some of those questions in context and hopefully provide some kind of um, guide, if you like, almost a framework through which we can think about some of the domains of activity that we may need to undertake to ensure a very human future. Now, what I think is interesting about the work that you guys do is you take a um, perhaps a much longer term view into the future than um, uh, you know some other some other people I've sort of spoken to um, who, who are looking at this looking at this kind of thing. Um, you know, based on that, um, tell us a little bit about some of the scenarios you've got for um, jobs and, and and the workplace sort of moving forward uh, you know 20 years or so well I, I mean I think that's really interesting first of all that, that that you say about how far into the future people look because one of the things that we typically say is that we think future-proofed organizations work across three horizons in parallel so we know how important it is for all organizations be they public or private sector to win the race for the current year so that's all about 
our operational excellence and meeting the expectations that we've set at the beginning of the year with our stakeholders. The second horizon is then taking a little bit further, a little bit more of a look into the future. And that's typically associated with kind of a budget, a forecast, a strategic planning process. But typically what a lot of organizations do is they basically extrapolate from the past. So, you know, what's happened in the past is a big driver for what we say is going to happen in the future. And of course, all of our corporate processes are geared around creating a sense of certainty to giving ourselves comfort and confidence about an uncertain future that we can then communicate to um, our external stakeholders, if it's a government, to the electorate, um, and if it's a company, maybe to our employers as well, uh, employees as well as to our investors. Increasingly, we think that really successful organizations look at a third uh, time horizon, and that's really taking um, a more of a helicopter view across the uh, across the horizon to understand the underlying future drivers that we see. And that's not about making decisions right now about something that may or may not happen in four to 10 years time, but it's about being prepared. It's about developing robust and resilient strategies. It's about giving ourselves the opportunity to make informed choices. So, so that's kind of the third time horizon that I think is, is critically important. Now, when we start to think about how some of the trends, some of the issues, some of the scenarios and some of the technologies and the changes that we're seeing may manifest themselves into the future, maybe we can see a world of multiple actors. And what I mean by that is if we think about how the nature of work, the nature of jobs, the nature of technology and the nature of humanity are changing, Maybe our workplaces become occupied not just by normal humans, and I'm imagining most of the people listening to the podcast would kind of classify themselves as normal humans, but increasingly we're seeing technologies and a willingness for us to enhance ourselves, be that through the likes of nootropics or be that through um, implanted devices inside our bodies. So this notion maybe of human 2.0 could come into play as well. And the interesting thing there is, um, if we're an unenhanced human, how do we compete with an enhanced human for the job that we really want? And actually, maybe that situation gets worse, if I can use that word, because if we think about the potential development of artificially intelligent robots in the workplace, how do I complete? compete with a machine that's as smart as I am, that can think faster than I can, that doesn't want to take holidays that can work 365 days a year 24 hours a day not only that if we then think about the integration of artificial intelligence and other types of projection type technologies then maybe we start thinking about um, about holograms about avatars so the workplace of the future may be a place of these multiple actors of unenhanced humans, of human 2.0, of robots, of androids, of holograms and avatars. And that, I think, sets up a really interesting challenge about how do we manage our workforce and the resources available to us in the organization? What happens if my boss is a robot? Do we need to combine human resources with uh, procurement so that what we're actually doing is taking a more holistic view on the on the resources, both human and otherwise, that we need within our organizations? 
fascinating stuff particularly about that kind of uh um you know mix of uh, mix of actors in the uh in 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 the work in the workplace um do, do you know what, i mean there there are obviously lots of discussions around um you know what what this means for jobs for humans um and and there appears to be sort of two 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 points of view around this one one which is sort of quite dystopian that um every job will be taken by by a robot and uh, they'll kind of rule the world um and the other one is sort of very optimistic that actually uh you know uh, new technologies will create new opportunities for for, for humans um you know, what what jobs are humans going to do what um you know what what is the role of humans in in this future workplace well i i I mean, the first thing I'd say is that it, it's interesting that you use the word dystopian to describe a world where there are 50 percent of the jobs there are now. I suppose it's only dystopian if we keep doing the things that we do now about our economy, through our politics and the way that we consider unemployment. If we think about the technological advance that comes alongside um, that dynamic within the jobs marketplace and we say, how do we um, realign society, both in terms of technology, the ownership of technology, the way that we tax, the way that we support social systems, and maybe we can actually create a much more human perspective rather than a dystopian one on how we have access to those technologies and maybe some of the changes that we um, could uh, hope for um, in a more human future. So maybe um, we have access to uh, education and training that's not just about jobs, but it's actually about how we live more fulfilling lives without the world of work. So I think that's one thing I would say about the notion of kind of dystopia in this um, uh, in this particular future. So, so typically what we're starting to see here is that um, those kind of jobs, well, first of all, let's take let's take manufacturing. A lot of manufacturing jobs that are likely to, and have already been replaced by um, by automatic processes and automatic machines. And maybe we, we're starting to see that happen across the white collar sector as well. So typically think of people working in call centers, typically people working in finance roles, even legal roles. And I guess what we're starting to see there is is the issue of something like artificial intelligence being able to pretty much do most jobs where there's a codifiable element to them. So if we think about accounting, accounting is basically a, a process, a system um, against which we apply a number of rules. So that kind of that's what I mean by codified. That's what I mean that that can be replaced by machines. And maybe the same is true in a lot of the way that law is is managed as well. So wherever we can codify something in the in the white collar sector, maybe there's an opportunity for us to automate that. The impact then is so if we're all doing the same thing with the same technology, how do we differentiate our businesses? And maybe that's about the human element. So the relationships that we might develop, um, how we make sense of, uh, of the things once we've codified them and once we've got the machines doing the kind of the number crunching element, if you like. Maybe it's about creativity. Maybe it's about other aspects of how and why we develop relationships across society. So we, we kind of need, if you like, to, to reposition what we think of as valuable um, in the jobs market, in the way that we work, in the way that we design work going forward. And that obviously then has an implication on education. 
So at the moment, I guess, what we're starting to see is we're starting to see people think about what does the world of work look like? How does that affect education? If, as some people suggest, two thirds of the jobs that children currently entering primary school are going to do in uh, when they leave haven't been created yet. So this is what I mean by you know taking a different view on the social structures that we have. If we take a different view on some of those structures, like education, like training, like a mindset around unemployability, then maybe we establish a different aspect to our social systems so that we can create people who will be able to live fulfilling lives in a world of non-work. So lots of people um, listening to the show uh, work in HR, work in talent and, and will have a, a kind of a direct influence within their company in terms of, um, you know, it, 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 in terms of, I suppose, setting setting policies and, and understanding, um, you know, the, the, the role of the role of people as the, as the future unfolds. Um, I, I know that you've kind of um, uh, in, in the book, you sort of, you know, you map out a manifesto for uh, what what a very human future looks like could you could you sort of talk us talk us through that yeah sure so so the manifesto is is it really seeks to identify 12 domains of policy strategy of, of activity that we think is critically critically important for for businesses for governments and and for individuals to help think about how we transition to a, a much more human future um, and the first of those is really about leadership and, and leadership actually stems from the requirement, I think, for us to adopt a new mindset. And what I mean by that is if we if we buy the notion of exponential change and increasing uncertainty in the world, then we we seem to me to have two choices. One is, do we want to play by the rules of the game that we've always played? But the issue there is if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Um, but if we think about the context of change, then standing still probably isn't an option. The alternative to that is to actually create a new game, to look at the opportunities that new technologies, new ideas represent for us. And we're increasingly seeing this notion of exponentiality applied to business thinking. The big challenge here is actually in our existing organizations. Are we able to underlie to, to change the underlying DNA of our organization, to challenge and change the culture so that we are able to move away from the safety of the current game we've been playing and to actually create a new game? And I think leaders increasingly, when they start to think about that, when they start to think about both the challenges and the opportunities of the future, will realize that there's much less certainty, there's much less agreement, there's much more uncertainty about how things will play out. So maybe what we're going to be seeing is much more activity in the domain of wicked problems, trying to understand the social nature of the problems, increasingly needing to collaborate to find some solutions. So a notion of extraordinary leadership, I think, will have all these will need all these attributes um, within the leader to help both take the organization and importantly, the people within the organization with them. Typically, what we see, of course, at the moment is um, leadership within organizations uh, kind of a closeted away, coming up with a new strategy, spending months identifying what that strategy is and the actions that we need to take, and then expecting the rest of the organization to get it and come with them after one presentation or town hall meeting. Uh, so maybe we need a whole bunch of new skills around our leaders to help that process along. I think digital literacy becomes really critically important. That's not about coding. It's 
It's about creating an understanding of digitization in the future economy, in the future workplace, what it means. How do we embrace it? What are the choices we have? What do we need to learn so that we can make informed choices about what it means for us and which of the technologies that we adopt and adapt to our needs? Um, the third domain is really about education systems. And, and I don't just mean school here. I'm thinking about everything from kindergarten right up to lifelong learning in job learning. Um, and I touched on this on this a couple of minutes ago. How is our education system at the moment best suited to develop and deliver people suitable for a world of work that hasn't been fully designed yet? So what are the things that we need to think about? What are the kind of the core underlying strengths that we need? But then what are maybe some of the more softer skills like reasoning, like strategizing, like collaborating, like uh, uh, working empathetically? So, you know, what are some of those other traits that we need within the education system so that we do equip people in a much more holistic way for a new world of work, as I say, that is still evolving, that hasn't been developed yet? The next area is about evaluating exponentials. And, and, and what I mean by that is typically big organizations and government are very slow to adopt and adapt to new ideas, to new technologies. So we kind of need to be need to create a sense that it's OK to experiment and fail. And, and companies and governments really don't like that. Companies don't like it because uh, their investors don't like them to be seen to fail. Um, those are quite difficult messages to communicate to employees and to uh, investors and other stakeholders. And actually, the same is true of governments as well. Governments like to kind of create a sense of certainty, a sense of comfort, a sense of it's always been like this and it's always going to be the same. Because at the end of the electoral cycle, they're communicating to their uh, to their consumers, to their customers, trying to put a proposition to them to give them more time to do the things they want to do. I think there's then an, then an area around employer responsibilities, and that's potentially about thinking if I'm going to make people redundant in my organization through, or through automation, what responsibilities should I have to help them train for a new role? What responsibilities should I have to the broader ecosystem about funding them through a period of uncertainty? Not only that, if we are automating processes inside our organizations, what additional responsibilities should I have if I'm automating um, employee monitoring, reporting, assessment to ensure I look after their, uh, their personal information? And how might the employee uh, needs change if I start to create a, an organization with multiple actors? I think another area is support for job creation. So what are the kind of investments that we need to make as a society, not just through government, but maybe through the public sector, through the private sector as well, to create new opportunities, to create new jobs, to create an environment that brings new technologies and new business sectors into play? In terms of actually investing in the job list, maybe this is where we need to start now to run experiments around things like um, at universal basic income or conditional basic income. Maybe think of conditional or universal basic services. We're starting to see some local authorities across Europe now put on free public transport, for example. 
Now, one of the reasons to do that is to try to encourage us not to use so many car journeys. But maybe that's also a way to make people more mobile and have them apply for jobs maybe further away from home. So how do we invest in the jobless and, and, and create systems that allow them to fully integrate and fully and fully continue to act as, uh, as a fully paid up member of society? The other is about kind of creating the right sort of environment for new sectors to flourish. So if we look at the breadth of technologies that we're seeing emerge at the moment around AI, around robotics, around drones, nanotechnology, new computing ideas, um, new uh, new blockchain um, um, areas, uh, synthetic biology, there's a whole bunch of these new technologies that will come in to create new sectors. What are the kind of the frameworks that we need to in order for those sectors to flourish? And ultimately create new employment we'd hope um, the ninth <clears throat> excuse me the ninth area then is about addressing the mental health challenge um, every day now it seems to me that there are um, articles either in the newspapers or items on on the news talking about stress and talking about the impact of mental health so maybe we need to invest in training new therapists, training new counsellors, so that we consider mental health in exactly the same way that we do physical health. Um, that's likely to become an increasingly major issue, the increasing degree of uncertainty we have as we kind of transition from the current world into this, into this new, more digitised world. The other area then is what about technology ethics? What are the ethical conditions under which we want to bring new technologies to market? How do we actually do that in a way that's the, that we create the right balance between governance and guidance? How do we do that in a way that makes sure technologies are safe for humanity in the future? Is there an opportunity to create something on a global, a regional, or, or as well as a national basis on which we can be assured that the technologies are being developed for the good of everyone and not purely just for profit and then potentially to take control of more of our lives? So some of those sort of dystopian futures that we've uh, that we've seen in science fiction for example um, the penultimate area then is actually not to throw away everything that we've learned from the past but to draw constructively on the past so what is it in the past that's enabled us to create long-lasting relationships what is it that we value of our basic humanity from the past and how do we use the opportunity presented by new technologies to help us make that past make those past opportunities live into the future given that we're entering a much more automated and much more technologically driven world and the final area is doing the kind of thing that podcasts like this actually facilitate. And that's make sure that we have a very human dialogue to make sure that we raise these issues into public consciousness so that people can be aware of the issues, the challenges and the opportunities that this new raft of technological advances represents for us. And that we can actually make what I would think would be the right choice and move to a very human future rather than a, a you know, potential a technologically driven dystopian one so uh, final question i know that um you know we're not just talking about technology there, there are all the other aspects that um <coughs> that you indicated that that go into this um but just sort of focusing say on the next two two to five years um what sort of uh, current technology do you think is going to make the the biggest difference to 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 the workplace in that in that time period um, I'm going to be very boring and say artificial intelligence. Um, I think 
what we're starting to see with AI is is just how potentially powerful it can be in automating more and more of our processes. And I think that represents a, you know, a massive challenge. Right now, what is the motivation for any organization, for any business to automate processes and systems through the use of AI? And, and, and for me, that motivation is about efficiency. It's about profit. So the elephant in the room is obviously by getting rid of jobs within the organization that that's kind of what we mean we yet to really see artificially inte- artificial intelligence used to genuinely enhance our relationships um, our interaction with customers i think even those applications that we generally see that change interaction with customers are very much about our operational efficiency within the within the business and i don't necessarily see that changing if we think about the political and economic economic context, particularly in the UK and particularly with Brexit, but also with some of the other um, areas that we're seeing politically and economically around the world, potential trade war between the US and China, um, increasing protectionism of the US market, all those kind of things. Then right now, um, I can see more and more organizations looking at, 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 at AI as an opportunity to protect their business, to build in efficiencies so that they can uh, so that they can retain the level of profit that they're used to uh, they're used to delivering so i think it then becomes incumbent upon maybe some kind of partnership increasing collaboration between politicians and business leaders to say so how with all that backdrop do we make sure that we don't harm our societies for the longer term by just make by just allowing people to be made redundant how do we then support them in some way um, through this kind of difficult period that we're inevitably coming up towards? And I think that's the biggest challenge. And I do think it's around artificial intelligence because we see we see AI playing a big part, not just in kind of the efficiency of business processes, but also in the likes of um, uh, autonomous vehicles. So, you know, we're likely to see autonomous driving becoming a big thing. So at the moment, there's a shortage of truck drivers in the US. Maybe that's only temporary because as soon as we have autonomous trucks in the US, then we you know, we don't need to fill those vacancies that we have. And we can kind of see that being replicated across different areas of the mobility economy as well. So that's what makes me say AI. Absolutely. And um, I, 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 don't, I couldn't agree with you more. Steve, thank you very much for talking to me. My absolute pleasure, Matt. My thanks to Steve Wells. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or via your podcasting app of choice. The show also has its own app, which you can find by searching for Recruiting Future in your app store. If you're a Spotify user, you can also find the show there. You can find all the past episodes at www.rfpodcast.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to the mailing list and find out more about working with me. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next week and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.